everybody. Welcome back to the Bet On Yourself podcast. Today, we're going to do things a little differently. Today, I'm going to be talking entirely about my newly launched book, Bet On Yourself. Yes, the same name as this podcast. And this is going to be maybe a little summary reminder for those of my readers who have already received their copy of the book. And this is a teaser for those of you, especially here in Europe, who are anxiously awaiting your copy to be delivered because the uh, European publication date is next week. So whether this is a reminder of some of the challenges and the stories, or if this is a sneak preview, I hope you stay tuned because I'm going to share some brand new content that none of you have heard before in this podcast episode. And I'm going to be reading those favorite sections of the book to create an accountability system and to really tease some of the content of the book for those of you who are hearing it for the very first time. Okay, I've got three different excerpts that I think are among my favorites in the book that I think might resonate with you. The first excerpt is gonna be pages 95 through 97 and 99. This section is really about being purposeful and deciding who you want to become. So it's uh, nearing holiday times and I feel like I finally have permission to watch some of those holiday themed movies. And one of my favorites that I watch every year is called Love Actually. There's this line, actually, no, this isn't from Love Actually. This is from The Holiday. The Holiday, yes. So in The Holiday, um, there's a character who goes to LA. She's from England and she meets this former film exec. And she realizes she's, she's there because she's just experienced huge heartache, massive pivots, upheaval in her life. And this former film executive points out to her, he says to her, you deserve to be the leading lady of your own story. And she just stopped in her tracks and was like, you're right. (laughs) She's been playing the supportive role to other people and let them be in the driver's seat. And she was heartbroken because of it. And I think about that every year about you deserve to be the leading lady of your own story. Right. So this section is a little bit of my journey to allowing myself to and giving myself permission to craft this future self. Okay. So starting on page 95 in the subsection called actively create your future self. I didn't realize at the time or for many years to come how rare it is for people to try and reinvent themselves through stretch goals throughout their career. I think the greatest gift that Silicon Valley gave me was the concept that nothing is unchangeable or fixed, including myself. I later took this experience in my role while working for Eric Schmidt in the CEO's office and running major collaborative projects with much more intimidating emerging technologies, such as artificial intelligence. I could not have done that without being willing to take a seat at tables for those far senior to my job title and put in the hard work while exposing everyone to the ups and downs of my learning process. I learned to be able to envision my quote unquote future self as UCLA psychologist Hal Hesherfield describes it as something within my control. Without being able to envision this new evolving self it would be impossible to be deliberate and purposeful about my risk-taking growth and learning in a meaningful way. And I would have missed out on promotions, projects, and advancement that have driven my career forward. Why would anyone put herself through the hard work and occasional humiliation without the possible reward of this self-designed future identity? Most of us have identities wrapped up in the experiences of our past. But the good news is, that with some purposeful choices, you can shape and change your identity, the way that you and others think about you and to be anything that you want to be by taking on small incremental changes. 
This process ended up giving me the amazing advantage of being able to grow my skills in a way that qualified me to work for Eric Schmidt, where this pattern continued. I took on projects that most people at my job level never would have experienced. I just needed to be brave enough to let my growth goals be known by Eric and other leaders in power and to show them how my accomplishment of these goals would benefit them as well. That created a natural executive sponsorship relationship, and it is also the path for official promotion. I'm going to insert an aside here. Those of you who have heard my recent speeches, this is what I describe as the win-win-win. When a growth for myself allows my manager to delegate something off of their plate to me, which is a growth opportunity, and has them realign with what the company needs most, the company wins, the manager wins, you win, you get a yes every time. Look for those win-win-wins. Okay, let's continue the excerpt under the subsection, create a promotion plan. I have never once in my career had a manager who came to me and said, Anne, I've noticed this untapped talent of yours and I was thinking about ways in which we could apply it and grow your influence. <laughs> that just isn't gonna happen. That's the kind of effort that has to come from you. And I can tell you that when I became a manager myself, I was always thrilled to understand the growth goals in my direct reports and ways in which I could support them. It made my job so much easier as their leader and gave us all a united purpose. When I wanted to advance at work, I would go to my executive six months to a year in advance and lay out my plan. For example, when I wanted to become Eric Schmidt's chief of staff officially, a job title that didn't yet exist at the company, I came to him with a self-evaluation of the tasks I already did that were at that level, as well as a list of suggested skills I needed to develop with specific projects I wanted to take on that would give me a chance to learn them. Once we were in agreement and alignment with my goals, I then had a roadmap to promotion that focused on advancing both of our positions. Then I got to work. I knew that if I was going to be truly a chief of staff, I needed to hold meetings with Eric's executives in his absence and have the opportunity and authority to make some decisions on his behalf. As a first step, I proposed a plan where I would meet with the leads of the communications and policy teams once a week to review all of the global needs and concerns and to formulate recommendations for how we would address them. I would take this detailed understanding of the company's needs and create a prioritized strategy proposal for how to address them. This was both an intimidating and thrilling learning curve, but I immediately increased our ability to take action and create the best outcome for the company and for our users. Some of my most valuable professional skills and deepest friendships have come from making these bold moves. Now we're going to fast forward to page 99. It may or may not surprise you to hear that I have never once got a formal written performance evaluation from my CEO managers. I supplemented this lack of formal guidance by seeking out small, consistent movements and asking the hard questions in order to get real feedback about ways in which I could improve. Performance reviews should be direct specific, and actionable. Unfortunately, receiving this kind of feedback is a challenge for most workers, especially those who are high performers, because delivering this is a challenge for most managers. And this is especially true for women who often only receive feedback about their behaviors rather than their skills. This leaves the burden on the individual to seek out feedback from managers and supplement with peers. When I receive a vague feedback on my performance, it was up to me to break it down into guiding principles. If I received a general good job, it was up to me to ask specifics so that I could know exactly the elements to repeat next time. 
when my performance was subpar, I would have to force the conversation to get specific about an action plan for doing better next time. I would proactively come up with a plan for how to avoid this situation from ever happening again and propose changes I would make for better results. That way I had a specific action plan that was agreed upon and that I could implement with full confidence. I would then specifically ask for resources, training, and mentors to guide my next steps. This feedback never came unsolicited. So I hope maybe that resonates with your experience, hopefully on the better side, but even if this is a particularly challenging area for you, I hope you've got some takeaways of ways in which you can feel empowered even in those situations when you're not getting that kind of guidance that you really crave. So I did wanna let you all know that we have an accompanying workbook uh, that goes along with a book and it's a great way to translate these stories and inspiration and these aha moments you might have experienced into actionable steps that you can take today without having to reinvent the wheel. So we've got literal downloads or prompts or reminders for thought experiments you can do with yourself or how to get started in creating your mission, vision, and values, how to have that promotion conversation with your manager, how to get the stakeholders in your life on the same page with what you're trying to accomplish. So if that sounds interesting to you, check out the book's website, www.betonyourselfbook.com and uh, click on the link for the workbook. So this next section, this next excerpt that I wanna highlight is really about knowing what you want and then going after it. So a frequently asked question I get now as I'm doing speeches about the book is people are asking me, how do I know when I should stay at my current role and when is the time to go? When should I start leveling up and betting on myself in a different way? I summarize this in three things that have been true for me. May or may not resonate for you, but these are my guideposts of what I value most out of my career. So make your corresponding list for yourself. I know I value three things. First is expertise. I want to become a thought leader in the space. I want to learn as much as I possibly can and as fast as I can. So that means I want to be in teams that really prioritize learning, experimentation, and improvement. The second thing I look for is working for a leader that I not only like, but that I want to become like. If that leader is not your direct manager, that's okay. Um, but you want to pick your eyes up, look around the company and see someone who has that leadership presence, maybe that charisma, that persuasion power is really good with getting, giving helpful, critical feedback and find ways you can spend more time with that person. Because we've all heard the saying that we're the average of the five people we spend most of our time with. Time with. So let's be really choosy about who that tribe is. The third thing I look for in my career is disruption. That can be opportunities to disrupt myself through additional learning or new experiences outside my comfort zone, or a team that's really innovative in their practices and their pace, in their expectations, or within an emerging technology, something that's really disrupting the entire industry. But I promise you don't have to be in Silicon Valley or inventing whatever's next after AI for this to apply to you. So whenever I feel like I'm spending more than 80% of the time, my time in my comfort zone, that goes to that point number one. Am I learning as much and as fast as I possibly can to gain the expertise that I value? Or if I'm not um, leveling up because of the leadership around me, that might be a time to pick your head up and look for a new team or a, a new role. And then the disruption. So that's kind of my checklist for when I, when I stay and when I go. Because I have had to reinvent myself many times over. At Google, I was there for 12 years. So that is a long time to be at a single company 
but I reinvented myself quite literally every three years, looking back on it, my job really changed, even if my title or my team did not. So there's a lot you can do as an entrepreneur. You don't have to do what I did eventually, which is to sell, donate, get rid of everything I owned and move to the other side of the planet to start my own company in a new country. That was really hard. Like the greatest thrill of my life, but like gut-wrenching. Uh, so no matter what your risk tolerance is right now, there's absolutely steps you can take to put yourself in the driver's seat. So this leads us to excerpt number two. This is pages 41 through 44. And we're going to start in a subsection of find meaningful impact. I had no idea that I would spend the next 12 years working at Google. I had even less of an indication that I would leave the company to become founder of an international consulting firm with CEO clients all over the world. The things I've learned along the way have changed the course of my life through seemingly small but constant pivots. The number one differentiator in my life and career has been absolutely the top quality of the people with and for whom I have worked. You don't have to work for a billionaire CEO or top tech company to have this up-leveling effect with your colleagues. However, you do need to be proactively cultivating it. I always prioritize the type of people I wanted to work with over everything else, including the job title and salary, because I knew that they would shape the kind of person and leader I would become. When I look at my peers who have found joy and impact in their work, I see that they have sought out a team with the highest quality people who are smart, curious, kind, collaborative, and results-oriented. Follow the leader you want to become. The most consistent way I've up-leveled my career over the past two decades has been two parts. First, I've prioritized finding a manager who is modeling the career path I want to take and embodies the leadership qualities I want to possess. Second, I have chosen roles that would surround me with top quality people and a depth of opportunities to grow with them. I could have stayed in the roles that were easy for me and avoided the stress and discomfort that I experienced at these companies, but it would have come at the cost of my long-term growth and happiness. I've learned that once most of my workday is spent in my comfort zone, my job becomes mundane and it drains me of energy rather than refueling me with new knowledge and skills. I've consistently sought out new projects or roles when I'm spending more than 80% of my time in my comfort zone every day. My next career steps have always been inspired by asking myself the key question of what do I want to learn in this next phase of my career? Without having a clear idea of what I wanted to learn, it's easy to unintentionally limit myself to roles and projects that wouldn't bring my work to a new level through challenges and growing my skills. I have never found myself in a situation where I felt like I had a boss or a team that wouldn't support my growth. But if I did, I would like to think that I would leave that job immediately. My past teams have driven me to take risks and achieve things I would have been far too intimidated to attempt alone. Looking back at my career path, it is obvious that my managers were often key indicators of the growth trajectory and the opportunities available to me. They set the tone, pace, and milestones. My managers, whether CEOs or not, develop my talents by giving me growth opportunities and continually challenging me with supportive environment. In exchange, it was up to me to be proactive with the opportunities. They were looking for results above all else, and I was determined to deliver. Connecting the dots of opportunity. In 2005, Steve Jobs gave the Stanford commencement speech and shared a philosophy about growth and seizing opportunity that immediately resonated with me and made sense of my seemingly disjointed career choices. He said, you can't connect the dots looking forward. You can only connect them looking backwards. 
So you have to trust that the dots will connect somehow in your future. You have to trust in something, your gut, destiny, life, karma, whatever. This approach has never let me down and it has made all the difference in my life, end quote. Deciding to make a dramatic career pivot to work at Google wasn't the first time or the last time I would make a big bet on myself in order to experience something that felt like a once in a lifetime opportunity. I've had the privilege of working at companies during periods of invention that will never happen again. To be at Amazon at the dawn of the internet and watch Jeff Bezos invent e-commerce is irreplicable. That moment in time will never happen again. To prepare myself for that role, I had to preface it with this unglamorous university job that taught me the core skills and gave me the confidence to try. The same pattern was true for my career at Google. I had the privilege to watch what is now one of the most powerful companies in the world move life-changing products from conception to launch and becoming indispensable part of our lives. My teams at Amazon and Google became like family to me. Not only did we spend more hours together than we did with our actual families, but our experiences together shaped me in significant ways. It pains me when I meet people who hate their jobs. I have a lot of friends across the globe who haven't been able to find a role that provides the challenges and opportunities for advancement they crave because of lack of local opportunities. I am happy to see the internet starting to level this playing field and providing a more global economy of opportunity, but there's still a long way to go. I can still feel like working in an industry that brings personal fulfillment is an unattainable luxury that is only available to the elite because those types of careers, education, and technology might not be available in a particular city. It is my personal quest to help overcome these barriers for entry to everyone. A lot of life's wear and tear around work can be offset by purposely choosing to surround ourselves with people who lift us up and inspire us to be more and do more. In the early stages of my career, when inspiring people were not yet available within my work environment, it was even more vital to me to seek them out in my personal life and spend as much time together collaborating on as many fulfilling projects as possible. Sometimes luck is not on our side, and we have to take a job that in no way resembles our dream job or our desired career path in order to pay our bills. Don't despair. This is a natural part of all careers, myself included, no matter how glamorous they appear on the outside. And there are always ways to create growth opportunities, even in these less than ideal roles. For example, Sarah Blakely, she's an entrepreneur I really admire. She is the self-made billionaire founder of Spanx. She sold fax machines door to door for seven years. And she credits the massive, massive success of her company, Spanx, to the core sales skills and the ability to not be dissuaded by rejection that she learned during those years. Any job, no matter how mundane, can teach us core skills that can drive the dream careers of our future. The key to seemingly impossible breakthrough success is being unafraid of starting small. Just about everyone likes the idea of being a celebrity CEO, but not many of us are willing to train it, trade in absolutely everything we have to build something alone in our garage. Starting small can be your greatest advantage, so don't apologize for it or discount the stage as unimportant. My jobs could have been very ordinary and not impactful. I was, quote unquote, just an office manager, then just an assistant, then just the junior most academic in my PhD program. However, with a little resourcefulness, I created opportunities out of seemingly nothing that became career-changing moments, and so can you. 
This leads us to our last section. The third excerpt I want to share with you is really about seeking out inspiration, discovering what you're passionate about, the environments in which you thrive, which is about finding the right pace, being inspired by the beauty of a mission or the passion alignment of the team and the people so that they bring out the very, very best in you. As I read this next section, I hope that you will reflect on the environments that have inspired you or environments that you might want to seek out in creative ways, perhaps solely online if they're not available to you in your day-to-day life. So the last excerpt I'll be sharing with you is pages 161 through 163. I first experienced the power of bold risk-taking when working for Jeff Bezos at Amazon in the early 2000s. While he was not only inventing the gold standard of e-commerce, but also literally building rocket ships. However, it wasn't until I worked at Google that I truly caught the vision for the moonshot process. I saw it while sitting with the Google X team one day a week for over a decade and watching them invent the technologies that will power our future lives. Google X, now renamed simply X, is in a building that used to be a shopping mall several decades ago. Rather than building it out as an office space with a signature vibrantly colored and expertly designed interiors of the other global Google buildings, Sergey Brin, Google's co-founder, instructed the design team to keep it bare bones and tactical. The walls are few and the structure is mostly bare concrete columns with the original engineering spray paint markings and electrical and fiber cables just cascading directly down from the ceilings. It's a cold, yet full of energy and movement, kind of like an airplane hangar. There are wires and mock-ups and parts strewn all around, full-scale models of cars and lasers and cameras, weather balloons and unidentifiable contraptions everywhere you look. The staircase twists through an open atrium in the middle of the building, connecting all of these mad scientists as if in a black and white Dr. Seuss book. The energy there is palpable. The senior leadership strategy team meetings were actually moved from Google's main campus to this building as a conscious effort to be sure that the senior leadership was exposed to a blank slate environment and primed for innovative thinking. The SVP's direct reports, including me, all camped out outside the conference room in a large open area with tall tables that we used as standing desks. We swarmed around like a beehive all day, exchanging ideas, catching up, planning, and collaborating. It was such a productive change of pace and environment that we started to hold our quarterly board meetings there as well. And this is how we tried to maintain an innovative, creative, and disruptive environment, even of our own best practices. My career surrounded me with people who lean into and actively seek out this kind of industry disruption. And I've learned how they stomach not only the daily ambiguity of trying to create something that doesn't exist yet, but also the required constant cycle of failure that informs their next steps. The truth is that the same formula that has helped X invent world-changing technologies, such as driverless cars, can also be applied to individual lives and career ambitions. Malcolm X famously said that, quote, the future belongs to those who prepare for it today, end quote. While he was talking specifically about the civil rights movement in the United States in 1962, This principle can be applied more broadly. If we want a future that offers exceptional opportunities, then we need to take action early rather than the accepted road. These future opportunities often never come without decisive action well in advance. 
I've learned early that I cannot passively wait for opportunities to make my dreams come true. I had to qualify myself for a seat at the table by doing the groundwork today to learn and gain the experience necessary to contribute at that level later. An unavoidable aspect of this qualification process is failure. During my two decades at Amazon and Google, I have seen repeatedly that there are three key elements in creating our own future moonshot opportunities. The first, be an infinite learner. Second, seek out things that make you uncomfortably excited. And third, make big bets early. The greatest predictor of future success is one's willingness to learn, experiment, fail, and repeat until one can produce the desired effect predictably. The challenge of learning new skills and mastering them is a reward in and of itself, but it also qualifies us for higher achievements next time. My work philosophy has always been that my job should give as much to me as I give to it. And that is a decidedly high bar. What I give in terms of time, effort, and risk-taking should be rewarded with learning, skills, growth, and empowered advancement. The secret is that I've had to take charge and demand this exchange. It did not happen automatically or passively. It is up to me to know what I want to learn and who I want to become and then seek it out. Be an infinite learner. It is no accident that Jeff Bezos is one of the most successful CEOs of our time. Yes, he has spectacular natural talent, intelligence, and drive. What differentiates him is the way in which he cultivates these abilities. When I worked at Amazon, I organized a week-long thinking retreat for him every quarter. This had been a practice of his long before I arrived. He would go to a hotel nearby, lock himself away from his usual routine, his staff, his family, and the first few days were spent starving himself of outside influences like newspapers, books, television, or even people. Jeff explained to me that he needed to craft a period of time to clear his mind of clutter and noise before he could open up the space in his mind for innovative ideas to enter. Boredom was an essential part of his creative process. The only thing he brought with him to these thinking retreats were blank notebooks and a pen. The second half of the week, he spent filling the notebooks with free-flowing, unedited ideas. He would come back to the office with the following week with notebooks filled with industry-changing ideas and strategies that we would spend the following quarter implementing. And the remarkable thing was that Jeff often stepped away for these retreats during our most critical growth moments of the company, when others would be tempted to just double down their hours in the office in the conference rooms. Jeff was wise enough to know that his greatest asset was his mind, and he needed to create a space where he could fully tap into his inner strength and ingenuity. When he returned to the office, his productivity was in an all-time high, and he more than made up for the hours that he had spent away from the office. Even now, two decades later, I smile when I watch Amazon launching things that were born in those thinking retreats so long ago, ideas documented in those notebooks. So friends, thank you for hanging in here with me. I hope that you've enjoyed these reminders or these teasers about what's in the book. And as a conclusion, actually I lied. Can I share with you one more short passage that I think is a really nice summary wrap up? And perhaps you would guess it's uh, the way that I start the conclusion of the book. Look, not all of us can be like Jeff Bezos and take one week uh, out of every quarter to just get bored and think of ideas and brainstorm. Like that is not a reality for most of us. But there are ways that we can create our own retreats and create this, carve out what little space we can, whatever we have control over. And I want you, as you think about like, 
maybe that's only 20 minutes a week or, or five minutes a day. Remember, you can write a whole book in the notes app on your phone. And also remember Pareto's principle, which I talk about all the time because I just think it's so powerful. It's also called the 80-20 rule. The 80-20 rule is um, a principle in economics that is proven that 80% of your results come from 20% of your effort. So if you at the most have control of 20% of your time, your free time, your thinking time, those 30 seconds while you're in line at the grocery store, you can actually produce 80% of your results by channeling that very purposely. So I want you to feel empowered rather than uh, frustrated uh, as you try and put yourself into, into the driver's seat of your career. And that's why I wanna tack on this one more little tidbit from the book that I think will give you an important element because I don't want you to play it small. Okay, so here's, here's a section from the conclusion that will show you that counterintuitively bigger bets sometimes are less scary and more approachable than the small incremental changes. Okay. I wanna leave you with a well-kept secret about leveling up and claiming a more adventurous life. The bigger the bet, the easier it is, really. Once I went skydiving with my brother Reed and my sister Erin to celebrate their birthdays, which are one week apart in June. I had been bungee jumping before and absolutely hated every second of the experience. I was so terrified that the guide had to literally push me off the platform at my fearful request because I couldn't make myself jump off. It took a lot of convincing to get me to join my siblings for something that I expected to be 10 times worse than that experience. The day of our jump, I kept waiting for that feeling of terror to arrive. Even when we put on our jumpsuits, watch the safety video, and sign the form acknowledging that what we were about to do could result in our death, I still felt calm. As we sat in the airplane at altitude and they opened up the door and my tandem guide inched us towards the edge, my legs dangled outside of the plane, I was simply excited. As we jumped out the door, soon to be followed by my siblings, and I, I didn't feel like I was falling. I felt like I was flying. The earth didn't seem to be getting any closer as we plummeted. So my brain literally couldn't comprehend that I was falling and fast. It wasn't until the first parachute opened after what felt like an eternity of free fall that I then felt the first tug of a gravity-like force. And I had a tiny moment of fear before a return of exhilaration. I think that my career and all of life's big bets are a lot like skydiving. When the stakes are so high and the pace is so fast and the margin for error is so small, I really couldn't comprehend it. I experienced a thrill rather than terror. I didn't know enough in those early stages of my career to be appropriately afraid. And so I was brave. And when I've experienced or taken risks that feel more like bungee jumping than skydiving, the feelings of terror momentarily return. That is when I need to ironically make even bigger bets and aim even higher to get that feeling of flying again. I want to stay so high up that I'm not afraid. I don't have any tattoos, but if I did get one, I might consider one that reads gratitum ferociter, which is Latin for step-by-step step, ferociously. That phrase happens to be the model of Jeff Bezos' space, space company, Blue Origin, but that's not the reason it connects with me. I think it is the perfect summary of the way I've chosen to live my life and shape my career. Measured, but fearless. If there is any common thread in this unexpected life that I've had, it would be that each of these seemingly small moments or decisions have had a ripple effect more profound than I ever could have imagined. If I had 
remained shy, stayed in my lane, and lived my life according to the advice of others rather than choosing to follow my own compass, I would have missed out on my life's greatest adventures. So friends, that's where I'm going to leave you. Um, I hope that you will take on a challenge with me. If during this podcast, something has stuck out to you, an idea came to your mind or a change you want to make, experience you want to have, especially if it's one that scares you a bit, can I challenge you to write it down, post it somewhere that you will see it and to commit today and take a first step towards it. Maybe that first step is just having a conversation with the stakeholders in your life, sharing that goal. So that can be a conversation with your manager, your life partner, your kids, anybody who kind of needs to understand that you're going to do some things differently and they might see you uh, experimenting with stuff and um, that you want them to be on board. So share that journey with these stakeholders. Please share it with me. I've been talking a long time into this microphone. I want this to be a conversation. So would you tag me in it? Would you share this podcast episode with somebody who can be an accountability partner with you? Um, please tag them here and share your journey with me through social media. I want this to be a two-way conversation because I am cheering for you. And I cannot wait to hear the big bets that you're going to be making on yourselves. Thank you again for all the support of the book. I can't wait to have it in all your hands. It will be on your doorsteps very, very soon, if not already. And um, you really mean a lot to me. Thank you um, to this whole community for making big bets on yourself and allowing me to be part of your journey. See you next week.